In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we come with grateful hearts for the gifts and the graces you give to us today. And as we celebrate this feast of St. Albert the Great, I pray that you would continue to inspire us as you inspired him to draw close to you and to remain close to you. As we come to reflect this evening on the great mystery of the holy sacrifice of the Mass and, and that those introductory parts, the beginning, the, the call of penance and the hymns of praise, I pray that you would keep us close to yourself uh, as we reflect upon this ascension into that closeness to you in the Holy of Holies, that you would give us always uh, an immense love, a, a great desire for you that will ever increase. We ask this through our Lady's care as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alrighty, so we're continuing with our TLM 201 series here. Um, so as it says there at the top of the, on the top of the handout, looking at the ascending the steps through the collect. Uh, and so, of course, last time, uh, reflecting specifically on the, the entrance procession, getting, getting to the sanctuary, the asparagus rite, the sprinkling, uh, as well as the, the prayers at the foot of the altar, and all of those being those preparatory things, the preparatory prayers, uh, and kind of left off last time, you know, saying, you know, that, and then, you know, as the priest ascends, then, then the mass begins. Um, and so, and of course, we know that the, uh, Nick, as you point out, the, says the order of mass begins with <laughs> the asparagus, right? You know, with, with all of these things beforehand. Um, but it's, it's, you know, kind of just in, in the mind of the, of the, of the ritual itself, you know, those things are the preparatory pieces. Uh, and then as one begins to ascend, uh, ascend the steps, which is where we'll begin today. This is where the, the sacrifice begins to be offered as entering into the temple. And so this is uh, kind of drawing from uh, from Father James Jackson, uh, the priest of eternity of St. Peter. And he had this uh, kind of a, a helpful analogy of, of the, the process uh, of kind of entering into these things. So as you know, the mass is the holy sacrifice of the mass. And so the ascending of the steps is, is kind of a, a sort of entering into under the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, the way of the cross on the ascent to Mount Calvary. Uh, and so we can imagine the, the, uh, the earthly life of our Lord, the 30 hidden years as Father's getting vested in the sacristy, right? Everything's kind of quietly being prepared. And then the, the, entry, the entry into the church is the three years of our Lord's earthly ministry and, and, and calling people to himself and, and leading us to... Uh, leading us to the Father, and so entering into the sanctuary is is our Lord is is kind of there, uh, preparing to enter into into the cross. And as the steps, uh, as the priest ascends the steps, uh, it's that that way of the cross that he takes up. He takes up the cross, going to Mount Calvary, there to to offer himself for us, which is of course what we offer in Holy Mass. It's, it's the gift of Christ Himself uh, and Christ crucified. And so uh, one point is that the priest always steps with the right foot. 
Uh, so everything is, is the right hand because right will be on the right hand of the Father. So you step with your right foot, which um, um, I've come to understand. I think that in the military, you always step with your left foot first. Uh, so all of my military men who serve at the altar have to reorient their brains um, because we serve not an earthly king, but a heavenly one. Uh, and so we are in, a, in a, a heavenly army now. So we step with the right foot. Uh, the priest steps with the right foot. Uh, we offer with uh, the blessings with the right hand. Whenever one's hands are folded um, in, the, in the posture of prayer, the right thumb is placed over the left thumb. Uh, so there's this primacy of, of the right hand side of the right. The, the, the father's blessings come from his right hand. And so it's that, that little gesture, the simple gesture uh, that, that begins, you know, that stepping with the right foot, that seeking after the, the way of salvation, seeking the blessings of the Lord, and, and daring to set our foot on the holy mountain. Uh, if you recall, and, and, um, as, the, as the people are exiting uh, Israel uh, and, and they go and Moses you know, ascends the mountain, uh, no one else can come near it. He says, if anybody steps foot on it, they will die. <laughs> And so uh, as the priest steps his foot on, the, on that, that first step, he is, he's praying, Lord, make me pure, please. Like, purify my heart, purify my intention. Uh, and so that's what the, the Alpha Anobis there uh, is. The, is the Alpha Anobis is, 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 is a prayer uh, reminding the priest and, and the people who are, who are following along in, in the missiles and prayers that's, that, he's, uh, that this is the holy temple of God, that this is the dwelling place of the Most High. And, and the, uh, you know, the, the sanctorum, uh, the holy of holies. Uh, and so it's you know, the, in, the, in the temple, in the original temple that was commanded by the Lord of the Israel people, is the people of Israel to be built after the image of the tabernacle. It was the, the, the holy of holies was the dwelling place of God. And then they had the, the sanctuary where the priest would minister uh, within, you know, kind of uh, enclosed around that. Around that would be the, the place where the, the faithful of Israel would gather. And then beyond that would be uh, an extra court called the, the court of the Gentiles. Uh, and so we still maintain that within our church, the tabernacle being the Holy of Holies. That's the, you know, the, whole, the, the altar there being the Holy of Holies. Um, the, the sanctuary being the, the sanctuary where the priest and the, and the ministers uh, assist. The community, the, the, the faithful gathering in the congregation, being in that larger area of the temple, and then the, the, the entryway kind of being the, the court of the Gentiles, so to speak, the gathering place of, of those who, um, who are not, uh, not of our faith, but oriented to it, as in all the rites, like in, in a traditional rite of baptism, you start right there in the entryway, <laughs> and you welcome them into the body first, right? And so it's this, this calling them to, calling them to our Lord. And so as the priest, uh, again, takes his first steps, is this mindfulness that he's entering into the, into the Holy of Holies. Um, and what a, what a marvel that is, because in the Old Testament, the priest, one high priest was able to enter into the Holy of Holies one time a year. And that was it. Uh, and and it, was, it, was, it was of such, of such importance that, that they, if, uh, if he went in and he died on the spot, uh, no one could go in and get him until the next year. Uh, and so it became a regular practice in the Jewish temple that when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, they would tie a rope to his foot uh, in case he saw an angel and died. If he didn't move, if he didn't come out after so long, they could just drag his body out uh, so they wouldn't have to enter into the Holy of Holies another person. Right. And so and they wouldn't have to just leave the poor guy there for for a year, uh, you know, rotting in the presence of the divine. And so. 
how great a mystery that, that what was once only able to be done by one man once a year, uh, that now priests all throughout the world uh, are able to enter into that holy place and to draw close to, to the divine uh, in offering the holy mysteries. And so the priest ascends the altar, kind of in that, in that, that mind, offering the Alpha Renobis. And then as he, as he arrives at the, at the altar, bowing down, placing his hands upon the altar, he prays the Oramos Te, uh, which is uh, a prayer uh, asking the Lord to have mercy on us, uh, and then reverences the altar with a kiss as he's praying you know, through, through, through these relics here on this altar, through the relics of these saints. Um, and so reverencing the altar with a kiss, uh, he reverences, uh, of course, the, 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 the saints who are present there, the martyrs who, uh, who would be, whose relics are in the altar. He also reverences Christ because the altar is Christ. Uh, we don't always, uh, you, you, y'all can't see it unless you happen to be changing the altar, uh, the altar linens. But on the top of the altar, there are crosses. There are five crosses, four, uh, two on each side, uh, and then one, one in the center. And so their cross is engraved into the, the mensa, the top of the table uh, the, of, the, of the altar. Uh, and so it's those, those crosses that remind us of the five wounds, that the altar is Christ, but the altar is also representative of us, the faithful. And so as the, the priest ascends and, and reverences the altar with a kiss, uh, it's to reverence Christ. Uh, it's, to, it's to honor the saints. It's to show his love for the faithful. But it's also a reminder that the Judas came with a kiss as well, uh, and to pray that as we enter into the sanctuary, that we not be the kiss of Judas, but that we would be a kiss of peace, a kiss of, of faithfulness and love for our blessed Lord. And also one of the, one of the neat things that, that often is, uh, uh, again, so many things that, that simply are, are not seen unless one is right there, uh, and even, even then the servers can't see it most of the time. One has to be on the side uh, to see is the, the posture of the priest hands at various points during the Holy Mass. Uh, and as the priest enters at this point, and, and each time that he, that he bows down, uh, his, his hands are joined, with, and then his thumbs uh, crossed over at the top. But he, he places his hands with his ring finger being on the top of the table, and the, his pinky fingers, uh, the tips of them being pressed against the front of the altar. Um, and so it's, it specifically indicates that he, that he places his hands upon the altar in this way. Uh, and then one could ask the question, why? What does it matter, right? Um, and so throughout the history of the church, uh, numerous, numerous uh, writers and theologians and, and liturgists have reflected upon the, the various rites and, and what they mean and, and all the symbolism that's contained therein. And it's been, it's been suggested that, that as one comes forward, the, the, two, uh, the two fingers that are the two pinkies pressed against the altar uh, are the two natures of Christ, that he's both human and divine, that, that they are joined together and they join us to him. Uh, and so the two natures, the two pinkies are the natures of Christ pressed against the altar, uh, the place where he offers himself. Uh, the, six, uh, the six fingers that are joined together, the middle fingers, uh, are represented, mindful of the, of the six candles that are on the altar, uh, representing the, the grace of the sacraments that are being poured out upon us, as well as the faithful who are present there, and the hands, uh, the thumbs then holding it all together, uh, that, that we are bound to our Lord by the cross. Uh, and so even those little gestures that are given throughout the course of the Mass are, are ways in which we can kind of orient our minds, orient our hearts uh, towards the mystery that is there before us. And so... 
all this is, is uh, the ascending of the steps. At a high mass, this happens kind of quietly uh, and, and even at low mass. Um, but at high mass, usually the intro would still be, would be uh, sung at that point or if it was quick uh, or if the priest was slow doing the prayers, then they might be on the Kyrie already. Uh, but nonetheless, there's, you know, there's other things going on, but it's this, um, this, this quiet ascension uh, that takes place as it begins. And there, uh, we, we're not able to do it just yet. We've done it a few times, but looking forward to being able to, to do it much more frequently would be the incensation of the altar. And this would be at, at high masses. Uh, and so the first thing is, is that after, after the reverence in the altar, uh, the priest would then be greeted by the assistants to, to offer the incense. And so again, incense, uh, it is proper that the priest would place the incense in the, in the thurible. Uh, because it's part of the offering of the priest, right? If if somebody else just puts it all in there and brings it to the priest, the priest didn't really offer the incense. He didn't really offer it in sacrifice. He's just kind of taking someone else's and just kind of bringing it. And so uh, the priest the priest places the the incense upon the burning coals, so it can be burned, consumed. Uh, which of course reminds us of Revelation, Saint John's vision given to him by the Lord. It says the altar with with um, with this with the rich clouds of incense pouring forth. And um, Father Jackson, in his book, was reflecting and, and said in his own formation, he had a priest who one day he came in and and um, you know they're preparing for preparing for mass and, and he looked and he said, Father, would you would you like incense? And the priest just kind of looked at him in, in the sense of like. Of course, we're supposed to have incense, right? And you know, it was all said without words. And then and he went over and he, he put one charcoal in there uh, and then <laughs> went to go light it. And, and he looked over and the priest was just looking at him like, one charcoal, really? You know, so he put another one in and he looked over and the priest was still looking at him. He's like, three charcoals? And he said, okay, now we're talking. Uh, it's like, we don't, want, we don't want just a little, a little puff of smoke and then off you're done. You, you want billowing smoke so that... Uh, you know, you can't you can't even halfway see the altar by the time you're done. Then you did it right. You know, if you can't see the altar, you did the incense good that day. And so uh, it's this you know this offering up offering up the clouds of incense before the throne of God to, as a sign of the of the all holy, as a sign of of purification, of sanctification, of of consecration. Uh, it's and so that's what the the incense offers all of these things, and it's done at the beginning. Uh, in part because Leviticus 16 also tells us that to begin any of the any of the sacrifices in the sanctuary, um, you began with offering the incense. So you did the incense first, and then you could finish with the rest of the worship. And so incense comes first. And there's all sorts of um, the the rubrics, you know, three times to the cross, and then twice for each of the relics on each side with genuflections in between, and then three times incense at the back of the altar. Two on the side, three in the front, genuflect again, three in the back, two on the side, two in the, three in the front, three in the bottom of the front, moving back, genuflect, three more in the bottom of the front, and then you come over to the side, and then they incense you, if they remember, incense uh, <laughs> the priest, if, if the servers remember. And so, you know, there's this, this you know, the tons of incense is being offered, and the, the fact that it's on the back, it's on the side, it's on the front, it's on the bottom is, is simply... Uh, a recognition that, that the majority of our altars in, in the traditional Roman rite are honorantum uh, and would be kind of larger high altars. Uh, so they don't always have 
the ability just to kind of walk around it in a circle. Uh, and so if, if that's not the case, if it's pressed against a wall or it's just built architecturally not to do that, um, then you just kind of incense the back of the altar from the front side. Uh, but there are actually rubrics. If the altar is freestanding, there's a proper way to do it in that manner as well. And so, um, so yeah, you just offer the incense as a sign of, of preparation, of consecration, that the, the altar is Christ. Because uh, you, you only incense in the sacred liturgy things that are, um, that are Christ. So the altar, <laughs> the cross... Uh, the candle or, or the, the relics of the saints who are, who are living, you know, the, the living images of, of the body of Christ um, and heaven, the altar, which is Christ, uh, the, the gospel book, uh, the priest, the faithful. Uh, so all of these are, are presences of Christ in some, in some manner um, to a greater or lesser extent. Of course, the, the blessed sacrament in the end. Uh, and so this is what the incense is used for each of these things um, to be able to honor, uh, to purify, and to, and to sanctify. So uh, a few dates, a few things that we can put some information here on is we have St. Ambrose mentioning explicitly the, the regular incensation of the altar for Sunday Masses um, already in the 5th century. So it seems rather late, but, uh, but we know that this certainly has earlier roots, and it's just the first time that it's mentioned as a normative practice um, uh, you know, for, for the Sunday celebrations uh, for St. Ambrose in the 5th century, uh, and it became kind of normalized universally, uh, at least by the 11th century. Uh, but we also know that incense was something used, uh, as the previous point says, it was something used in the Old Testament, it was something used by the Romans, it was used by the pagans, uh, so we wouldn't just kind of pick it up 500 years later, you know, something that would have been already kind of part of the regular, the regular life of, of the church uh, and so many things. So we have the incense there uh, that kind of evolves. And as with, as with all of these things, there's a, a gradual evolution in, in, of understanding as well as the things arriving at the place where we have them now. So after the incensation, the priest is at the, goes to the, uh, to the epistle side of the altar. And so this is kind of symbolically of going, going to, uh, as our Lord, our Lord's mission is, you know, he, he was sent first to the Jews and then the apostles will be sent out to the Gentiles. And so our Lord goes first to the epistle side, which is the side where if the Old Testament would be read, it would be read on that side. Uh, and so kind of going to the Jews first and then uh, to the Gentiles, bringing the gospel to all the nations with the gospel proclamation that would follow. So the epistle side is where we where we go first, and so uh, bringing that first uh, that first first gift uh, to the Jewish people, and in Monsignor Ronald Knox's book, um, the Mass in Slow Motion, he's uh, again he's he was preaching a series of sermons to to schoolgirls, and uh, he's talking about this section. He says, and now again to the introit, and what happens at the introit? The priest takes out his, <laughs> the priest gets his spectacles. That's what he said. And he says, that's what happens. The priest gets his spectacles. And he says, I say that because up until now, everything else is, is memorized. Everything else is, is unchanging. It's the regular every single mass. It's always the same. And if it's the only time it's not the same is you take out Psalm 42 uh, for days where there would be uh, where there where would be a funeral mass. Uh, and so you just omit Psalm 42, but all the rest of it would be the same. So one doesn't have to kind of look at the text to see what it says 
Um, and so in his, his, uh, his way of acknowledging the fact that this is the first part of the Mass that changes regularly was the priest gets his spectacles because now he has to read something. Right? He has to actually look at the book to see what the text is. And he continues on and uh, he, says, he says, it's kind of like going to the restaurant with your uncle. Um, and, you know, he sits down at the table and even if he knows what he wants, he still picks up the menu and looks at it and says, what's on the menu today? And so it says so that kind of that, that same spirit that, we, that the priest kind of goes to the intro and, and says, um, says in a sense, you know, kind of what's on the menu today, which is simply a way of, of you know, as, as he was expressing it, a way of acknowledging the fact that the intro it uh, is not entrance antiphon, intro it antiphonum, um, is not just filler. It's not just kind of extra, uh, but it really is an integral piece of the liturgy. Sometimes, you know, the, the focus, you know, that we can focus so much on the readings that we forget that there, that there are other prayers, that there are other proper things that, that the Lord wants to impart to us uh, in this. And so we can focus so much upon the scriptural, the scriptural readings of the lesson and the gospel, rightly so, um, but sometimes in the neglect of the rest, the, the anaphons and the, the various orations. And so he says, the, you know, not to see this as, as filler, but, you know, as what's on the menu today, which is essentially another way of saying kind of that, that there's, there's something that we're supposed to be focusing upon here. There's something that the Lord has for us to be nourished by today. Uh, and so to be mindful of that, that the, the intro, it always ties together in some manner with a particular feast. Sometimes you may have to rack your brain a little bit and, and kind of squint your eyes and, and, uh, you know, kind of stew on it a little while to be able to understand perhaps what the connection might be. But but these things were not made kind of haphazardly. It was not a matter of they had, you know, put all the Psalms on the floor and, you know, there was this extra one. And what do we do with this one? Well, put it on that Sunday, you know. It's, uh, the, 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 there was always a, there's an integration and, and uh, integrity to all of the prayers of the Mass for each individual Mass, whether it's for a particular saint, for a commons, for Sundays, for various feasts. And so the intro, it begins by, you know, hoping to set that tone for the day. What is it, what is it that the Lord has for us in this particular liturgy? And so the intro, it, uh, as we have it today, is, um, is relatively new. Uh, it was normative in the early church that, you know, they, they didn't have hymnals. Uh, and so the, their hymn book was the Psalms because they, they knew most of them. It was, it was a normative practice to have the Psalms. And so what was a, a regular practice, you know, as an established regular practice by the 5th century there, it says, uh, is that, that you would have an antiphon, you know, so a, a first clip of the antiphon, but then the whole psalm would be sung. And so if, and if, and this would be as the, as the bishop or priest would be processing in uh, with the servers and everything was getting prepared, that this, this entire psalm would be sung. And if you ran out, if the psalm was a short one, you sing another one. <laughs> and you just kind of, you fill the time with whatever, whatever and how many psalms uh, are appropriate for that particular feast. But as time went on, uh, this began to be abbreviated. Uh, and so they would, they would sing, uh, they would sing the, the antiphon, and they would sing either either the first verse of the psalm, which oftentimes was enough to let you know all the rest of it, to, to remember all the rest of the psalm. Excuse me, that would be that would be called to mind. Uh, or they would pick another relevant passage out of the psalm that was somewhere in there uh, as uh, as a verse, and then conclude with the antiphon then as well. Uh, 
and this, uh, again, this would always be done by the choir. Uh, this, the, the, the antiphon, the introit, was not in, in the altar missal like we have it today until uh, approximately the 11th century or so. Uh, because it's only then that you start to have the, the, the evolution and the, the reality of low mass where you don't have a choir singing. So the priest still says the, he says the prayer um, even though there's not a choir present. And so it's in the 11th century that as low mass starts to become a normative thing in the life of the church from the abundance of, of mass requests and the abundance of priests, uh, as, and especially as they're being spread out and, and the mendicant orders are being sent out in these missionary endeavors, that it would be normative that priests would be celebrating mass, not simply by themselves in a single community, but be celebrating mass uh, on their own individually, multiple masses sometimes. Uh, and so the antiphon became something that was recited by the priest. Uh, and even, even uh, you know, at, at that same time, uh, it became normative that even at a high mass, whenever the choir would be singing the, the antiphon, the priest, uh, the priest would also say it at the altar. So kind of what we have today uh, for our high masses and sung masses, that would be, that was only the case uh, around the 12th or 13th, 12th or 13th century after the low mass began to kind of um, change the liturgical terrain. And so the introit begins also uh, for, for regular masses other than a requiem mass. Uh, the priest makes the sign of the cross as he's beginning the opening words as, as that reminder and that, that, that calling to mind um, of exactly what's taking place, that, that we're making, the, these are the first words uttered for the, um, for the sacrifice that's being effected there on the altar. And so the, the cross is made at that point. So after the, after the intro, it, uh, the priest returns and goes to the center. And it's a little, uh, a, little, uh, a little couple steps usually to be able to get to the center for the Kyrie. And reflecting upon this, again, kind of drawing, drawing our minds, uh, the, kind of the life of our Lord and seeing it played out, it, it doesn't match up perfectly, and, and, you know, but, but to, to consider it, to think about these things, um, helps us to, to live and enter into the spirit of what's taking place in the liturgy. And so one can imagine that, that our blessed Lord is, you know, as he's being led to his passion, that going from, from the epistle side to the center is, is kind of like his being led to, to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, where we know that uh, St. Peter denied him three times. Right? So St. Peter has this triple denial that he later on would come to, to be able to, to make his triple profession of love of the Lord. And then in that place, we also acknowledging our own sins, uh, the only ways in which we have uh, in some manner denied our Lord, uh, an imitation of Peter uh, by our sins, uh, that, we, that we go and we, we seek his mercy. And so this is the, the gift of the Kyrie. Uh, and so, you know, in the, in the early church, the, the language was Greek. Uh, we didn't speak Latin from the first, <laughs> uh, which is uh, kind of a common misconception. We think it was always in Latin right from the first, but it was uh, even in Rome, it was normative uh, to be in Greek for the first few centuries. Um, and so some will think that the Kyrie is just kind of a holdover of that, but, but that's actually does not seem to be the case. There's no, there's no evidence that that was normative. And in fact, even in the Eastern churches, the, the Kyrie as we have it was uh, kind of a later development uh, and so for us, uh, it's, it's only in the, in the fourth century that we see the first appearance of the Kyrie being part of 
the, um, the celebration of Holy Mass, the first time that, that Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison begin to, to appear. Uh, so that's kind of the first appearance in the present form that we have it uh, with the, 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 threefold, um, the threefold invocation of mercy. That happens, is firmed up only by, uh, by the seventh century. And so <clears throat> we have um, one of the interesting things that, um, that in, in, the, in the church prior to the Council of Trent, there was, there was a great deal of flexibility that I think would probably confuse or scandalize people even today. Um, that, that, you know, it was kind of much more, um, it would seem more to us, more like the Novus Ordo uh, and the kind of lots of options. You can change and flex and tweak and do all kind of things. Um, but specifically with the Kyrie, and they would do it also with the Creed and the Gloria and, and these things, they would, they would add in verses. Uh, so kind of like in the, in the, the English Mass, you know, you'll, you'll have a variety of three-part uh, kind of introductions in the, in the present Missal of Paul VI. Um, that's, you know, the, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart, the Lord have mercy. You came to call sinners, Christ have mercy. You're seated at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us, Lord have mercy. There would be similar kind of refrains that would be spoken in the midst of the Kyrie. It would be sung uh, together. These tropes or verses would be added in. And they were, it was a, a regular thing. And you, they're, they're present in a variety of, of the missiles, uh, the altar missiles prior to the Council of Trent. Uh, but Trent, Trent was trying to universalize everything because the Protestant revolt was happening and attacking the faith and different things were happening in different places. So Trent's purpose, the council, was, was really to kind of standardize so that you could have a, a, solid, <laughs> a solid defense, a solid front to push against. And rather than allowing Protestantism to creep into the church in some manner through, through some of the cracks. And so that universalization of the ritual um, was, you know, put an end to these, these tropes or verses being added in in the Kyrie or the Gloria or the Creed. And, um, but nonetheless, it was, it was a regular part of the liturgy that the Kyrie would be kind of a much longer, uh, much longer thing. And that's why, you know, we have some of the masses that we have. The Kyrie is, you know, kind of float up and down, you know, <laughs> notes, they, you know, they hit the Kyrie and you're on hey, for a good long while, right? Um, and so this is, they would use those same notes and they would have sentences or, or acclamations of the Lord, praises of his mercy. Uh, and so that, that's sometimes why that those longer, the longer curies would, would be for, for some of those verses uh, or tropes would be included there. And so uh, part, of the, part of the gift of, of this, uh, you know, and all of these things, the, the liturgy is primarily about worship of God. But also on that on that same point, it is it is educational. It is formational for us. And so, while it's not primarily a, primarily a, a teaching tool, there is much that can be taught um, and can be learned by by studying the, the liturgy. And so, uh, the great axiom of lex orandi, lex credendi, the law of prayer is a law of belief, is also present in the Kyrie uh, by this wonderful uh, wonderful Greek word perichoresis. Uh, which is essentially the the mutual union of the three divine persons that that you can never have uh, the Father one one place and and the Holy Spirit and and, and the and the and the Lord separate right so wherever you get one the other two are always there right 
So you never, there's never a division of wherever one is. There's always all three. That's why whenever we speak, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in our hearts. But the Lord Jesus also tells us from Revelation, behold, I stand at the door, knock. And if, if you open the door to me, we're going to come in. Right? And so it goes from singular to, pure, to plural because it's this fact that, that whenever you get one person of the divine trinity, you get all three persons. And so uh, this ninefold, um, ninefold um, seeking of the mercy is three times, three times the Kyrie, so three times to the Father, but also acknowledging it's the Father together with the Son and the Spirit. And then Christe, of course, the changing that uh, Christe eleison, emphasizing the humanity that, that our Lord, uh, our Lord Jesus is the one who took on our flesh. So he's the one that we call out specifically, he is our Messiah. He is the anointed one. Three times we call upon him, knowing the Father and the Spirit together are invoked. And then returning again, Kyrie, that the Father and the Son are invoked there with the second and third. And so all three persons of the Trinity offered, um, offered praise and, and seeking mercy as we each individually um, turn to them. Another point that's, uh, that, is off, that is also mentioned in a couple of the works is that the, the nine, the nine uh, seeking of mercy, the ninefold seeking of mercy, also can correspond to the nine manners in which we sin. Uh, so original sin, venial sin, mortal sin, being the first set of three, and then thought, word, and deed, uh, being the second set, and then malice, weakness, and ignorance being the third. And so those different, you know, kind of different types of sin, so to speak, for which each, each of those nine, uh, we, can, we can turn to the Lord in lamentation and seeking his mercy for each and for all of them. So the Kyrie, you know, when you go in and just as at the first, right, you, you do lots of prayers to preparation of the altar, you know, Deus to, you know, judge me, O God, discern my cause, um, you know, to, to pray for a pure heart to, you know, Lord, Lord, have mercy. I confess my sins. All of these preparatory prayers, the, the priest ascends to more preparatory prayers. Um, and then he comes in the middle and makes more, you know, um, Monsignor Knox says it's, it's our, our time to grovel. He spent, he spent two pages talking about groveling before the Lord. It was, just, it was like the word just stuck out all over the page. Grovel, 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 grovel. Right? And so it's our time to just go before the Lord and to say, Lord, you know, I have nothing. I am nothing. I need everything. You are everything. Everything is from you. Lord have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord have mercy. And just this, this begging, a begging before the Lord. And, and we know that the Lord is quick to show his mercy, uh, and, and we are mindful of that. <clears throat> and so uh, we humble ourselves before the Lord, and then, and then he lifts up our hearts immediately following. And so it's the, the great gift of the Gloria that's, uh, that's so, it's, it's really kind of a, a singular movement as is, is, is we, we bow down, and then he, he's the one who comes to, uh, to lift us up, as he himself promises. Uh, and he lifts us up to be able to sing his praise. I love the the, the Gloria um, because it's 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 really just kind of a um, it's not a like a it's not a nice clear kind of theological thing. It's it's really just a it's an outpouring of love um, that it's it's and it's really focused um, upon upon the Lord, right? Um, it's just how you know adoramos te, glorificamos te, gracias sagimos tibi. This this turning continually, we praise you, we bless you, we adore you. Um, and so this this praise that pours out, and then you know, was um, just the the titles that we're giving to the Lord. They just come one after the other, after the other, after the other. 
And it's just uh, uh, just an immense, uh, an immense show of love because we recognize just what the Lord has done, or at least that's the intention of the Gloria. Uh, that's, why it's, that's why it's typically sung to a, a joyous tone. Um, and so <clears throat> it's to have that, that lifting up of our hearts of, of all of these things. And the Gloria itself, of course, we know, we know the, first, the first line is given to us in the Gospels when, when the angels appear uh, you know, and say, Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace to men of goodwill. Uh, and so we have, uh, this is one of the earliest ones that we have, uh, is the inclusion of the Gloria in some form in the liturgy. So this is one of the earliest points that we can say definitively this was, this was for sure part of things from the, from the very beginning. <clears throat> and we have Pope, uh, Pope, T- Pope Telesphorus uh, in the second century, and it was in the earlier part of the second century. It was the first half of the second century, so the 120s, 130s, I think, uh, was the date. And he, is, he was uh, the Holy Father who, who was, it was normative that the bishop would, would intone Gloria in excelsis Deo et in terra pax hominibus uh, bone voluntatis, that, that, uh, that the bishop would intone this at the midnight mass for Christmas. That's the only time it was sung, and it's the only person who sang it, but it starts there, right? And it was at this point of the mass that it would be sung. And so over, uh, over time, we see in the fourth century, a couple hundred years later, uh, St. Hilary of Poitiers uh, seems to have, have provided a longer form of the, of the hymn. And so in those, in those 200 years, um, it began to, to grow more and more and more. And uh, at this point uh, in the fifth century, we see that already it was it was permitted on all the Sundays of the year, not just on Christmas Mass, uh, not just in the Midnight Mass, but it was permitted uh, on the Sundays throughout the year, excepting presumably the penitential seasons. Uh, but it was still only would have been sung by the bishop. Uh, so at that time, it was still the bishop. Um, you know, essentially, kind of celebration was still a sort of normative thing, um, or or the or the bishop. You know, surrounded by his priests at a single mass, a main mass, uh, and so that's when it would be sung for the main Sunday mass in the community. Uh, but then, uh, as time goes along, the priests are then able to say it as as the priests start to to go out and they're spreading out, and the church begins to take her um, to grow, become more and more a present form of parishes individually and pastors uh, that that the priest then. Uh, take up this role of of intoning the Gloria, uh, so it begins that priests can say it on Sundays, uh, and then ultimately that the priests um, can offer it even for the celebration of the festal days, such that now it's it's uh, it is the it is more the norm. It's the exception that you don't have the Gloria in the traditional Mass. Uh, so it's either either green ferial ferial days with no feast. Or the penitential seasons, or a requiem mass, when a gloria would not be prayed. But uh, again, several hundred years for that to to move from a single a single word or a single sentence to the larger prayer, to allowing that to be done through the year and being done for uh, by the different priests. And so the the gloria also, um, you know, part of the gloria in excelsis Deo is. Is the recognition that that the glory, um, uh, again, kind of calling calling to mind the Old Testament, that that whenever we spoke of the Lord's glory in the Old Testament, it was in regards to 
to the, the Shekinah glory cloud, which is the cloud of the presence uh, that, that led the people through Israel or, or through Egypt. Uh, it's the, the, it was a cloud during day and a pillar of fire at night. Uh, and whenever they, whenever they would set up the, um, set up the tabernacle, uh, when all would be, all would be ready and, and the, the cloud would come and descend and fill, fill the Holy of Holies. Uh, so that was the dwelling place of God, the dwelling of God, the glory of the Lord. And then the same happened in the temple, uh, in Jerusalem is the, is the temple, uh, when it was completed, when the, when it was consecrated, then the, the glory cloud came and descended into the Holy of Holies. And so uh, whenever we have our Lord, you know, whenever we see glory spoken of, uh, that, that it's, it's the dwelling place of God. It's, it's God is here. And so whenever we hear that song from the, um, from the angels at the nativity, is to recognize God is here, right? The next time that one hears it is 40 days later for the Feast of the Presentation. Uh, Zechariah speaks of, of the Lord, you know, the, the light of revelation and the glory for your people Israel. So he is, you know, he's, he's holding the Christ child and saying, this is glory for your people. Right? It's the dwelling place of God. Uh, that we see also the next time that our Lord shows his glory was on the Mount of Transfiguration where he shows his radiance. He shows that he is God to Peter, James, and John. Then we know that he ascends to the Father's right hand in glory, so the ascension. And the last place that, that we see glory uh, specifically spoken is, is, in fact, at the Mass in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and to be able to know that it is, <coughs> it is God dwelling among us, uh, and so it is his glory, his praise that we sing. And one of the neat things about, about the Gloria, uh, again, the, the little gestures um, that happen throughout the Mass, the little movements, are kind of ways that we can kind of think about these things, uh, is, is just in the matter of, of Peter's, tri- Peter's triple denial of our Lord, you know, as the Kyrie uh, there in the center of the move to Caiaphas' house, is we know that, that, that his, his, um, his turning back to the Lord brought him to faith, brought him able to, to receive the mercy of the Lord, and his brothers followed after him. But it's, it's also to know that, that they're in the center between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The hinge, of course, is Christ himself. He is the, he is the thing that changes. He is, the, is the, the one that marks the transition from the Old Covenant to the New. And so they're being in the center, uh, the center of the altar is kind of that, the, the center point, the center focus between those, those different testaments that are offered. And also the priest, um, and as he intones the Gloria, then it indicates that, that the priest standing at the altar opens his hand, raises them, uh, and then closes them together. Uh, as he says, you know, in, in Steo, bowing his head at the name of God, uh, at the mention of God, rather, at least. Uh, and so uh, even that, that small gesture is, is, is kind of symbolic uh, because uh, whenever, whenever the priest turns to the people, he just has Dominus Vobiscum and his hands just go out. But here, it, they go up. Uh, so they go out and up. And so it's the priest kind of symbolically reaching up into the heavens uh, and, and invoking the angels, invoking the, the angels who first said these words, invoking that we might join with them and singing that hymn of praise. So after the Gloria, uh, after that uh, wonderful outpouring of, of love for the Lord, uh, the priest reverences the altar. So he gives the altar a kiss. Um, and, and again, Monsignor, Monsignor Knox is, is uh, 
a brilliant man, but he has a very simple way of kind of explaining things again because he's talking to, to little schoolgirls. And he says, you know, if, if, uh, if, if, you, if, if you had Jesus right here in front of you, but, but you felt like you were ignoring the person behind you, you would, you would, you would let Jesus know, I love you, but, but I want to bring them in the conversation too, right? Uh, and so he says, you know, so you, you, you turn to our Lord, you reverence the altar as a way of saying, Lord, I love you. Uh, turn to the people, Dominus Vobiscum. Come in, right? You know, come, come and come and join me in the conversation. Come and join me in this, um, and saying, "Kind of the Lord be with you." It's, um, and drawing, drawing in, and then going to the epistle side to offer the, uh, the offer the collect, and um, it's a couple of things. Uh, again, it's it's oremus, not oro. Oro would be, I let me pray. <laughs> I'm going to pray now. Y'all just. <laughs> Y'all hang tight, you know. Um, so Aramos is let us pray. It's, it's an, evo- an invitation and a recognition that it's not just Father's doing his thing and we're kind of all here kind of watching as if it's a, a, a theater play that's taking place before us. But it is, it is the entire community that is offering the holy, the holy sacrifice. Uh, in fact, the, the Roman canon speaks of that itself, uh, which we'll discuss later. But it's it's the it's the collective offering the the people coming to offer the sacrifice of Christ, um, and it's done through the hands of the priests. But it's the community uh, who is offering these things, and so it's the the priest calling the people to prayer, uh, but also um, Monsignor Knox said. He said, and, and this might be a good time if you've, if you've gotten distracted already, uh, you know, a few minutes into Mass, if the priest turns around and says, Oremus, oh yeah, we're praying, right? And so if we, if we get distracted, uh, anytime we hear Dominus Obiscum, Oremus, kind of pulling us back. And several times it happens through the Mass, he reminds us. Uh, and so it's just little opportunities that we can see, even, even the love of Mother Church saying, I know you can be distracted, come back, come back, you know, bring it back in um, and to call us back to prayer uh, and so uh, of course the the collect is prayed with with in the oron's position with hands hands extended as it describes it in the ritual uh, which is kind of a, a strange uh, kind of a strange posture because you know this you know hands uh, hands uh, it doesn't seem uh, a normative prayer posture uh, you know for for the majority of us but it, it does take its root in in the story of the, the old testament story of moses and amalek uh, of how they're, they're going to battle with each other. And, and Moses has his hands held up in prayer. And when his hands are held up, the scriptures tell us, then, then Israel has the better part of the battle and they, and they are victorious. When his hands get tired, he lets his, his, uh, lets his arms down to rest. Amalek has the better part. And so uh, Aaron and Joshua come by and they, sit, they set a stone on the ground so Moses can sit and they hold up his hands. Right? And so they're like, all right, we're just going to keep your hands up so we can make sure to have victory. Uh, and then... We know that they mowed down Amalek's army and they were victorious. Uh, but and so, um, you know, it's it's this posture that that we see. And, and like I said, in the in the present Roman rite, uh, in, the, in the traditional Roman rite, the 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 posture is uh, so many of the gestures are kind of in a in a, a simplified form, a, a sort of kind of sober sober form. So even uh, all the symbols are, are kind of you get the minimal symbol, not the full. Not the full thing. Whenever you come up for communion, you get a you get a small host. You don't get a large chunk of bread shoved in your mouth, right? 
Uh, and so it's these small symbols that still contain uh, a, rich, a rich meaning. But we see in, in other parts of the Roman Rite uh, and other, other rites of the church kind of under the umbrella of, of the Roman Rite that there are kind of different, uh, different manners in which the, the hands are held. Uh, I was um, in, uh, in California on several occasions and was uh, privileged to, to visit with a priest or, and who was also in residence at the church where I was staying. He was a, a Carthusian who had, who had been dispensed from his vows and was entering the diocese, uh, but he still prayed like a Carthusian uh, in the sense that, that the Carthusians, they raised their hands up high in the air for the whole Eucharistic prayer. Uh, so their hands are held up, you know, so whereas the, you know, the Roman priest has it kind of nice at, uh, at shoulder height at most. You know, his, <laughs> the whole time was just up in the air. The first time I saw it, I was celebrating Mass. I was like, what in the world is he doing? <laughs> I was like, this is different, you know. And he kind of explained, explained what it was. It's, it's, you know, the hands being held up in prayer. If one looks also, I think it's the, uh, the Dominican Rite, which is kind of the Carthusian Rite and Dominican Rite are both under the umbrella of Roman Rite. Uh, but they, they each kind of traditionally have their own um, kind of tweaks and things rubrically and, and prayers in the Mass. Uh, but I think it's the Dominican Rite, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where the priest will actually hold his arms out uh, cruciform. Uh, so he's, he's orientum, of course, because... It'd be weird if you're just looking at someone uh, with your hands out, uh, but properly oriented, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so this is fact of, of, of the priest is showing in his body, um, especially during the Eucharistic prayer, is, is showing in his body that this is a sacrifice, that this is the cross, this is Calvary. Uh, and so these, these different postures, but to all of it is simply to say that that arms are, you know, hands are raised in prayer, hands are lifted up in prayer, uh, whether, whether lifted up way high like Carthusians, way out like Dominicans. Uh, I've seen some priests look like they're being arrested, um, you know, to have their hands straight up uh, on the sides. Uh, always kind of makes me chuckle a bit whenever I see it. Uh, or the, the kind of the, the smaller, uh, as some priests were told, they were said, imagine you're holding a cigar box in front of you. Uh, that's the size, that's how big your hands should be, how far away they should be from each other, uh, traditionally speaking. So uh, just these different ways. But nonetheless, it's the fact that, that we're lifting up our hands in prayer, that we're, that we're asking our Lord, and we, and we trust kind of that, that ancient sign of, of reaching up to heaven to know that the Lord is, is going to hear our cry, that he's going to hear our plea. And the, the gift of the collect, the collect as we have it, uh, is pretty much, pretty much always um, in a similar structure. There's an address of the Lord. So we, we address the Lord in some particular manner. We give a brief description about him. You know, so, oh God, who are rich and abundant in mercy. <laughs> you know, and then you have a, a little clause of, of petition. You know, show us, you know, show us your mercy, show us grace uh, by these holy mysteries. And then you have a conclusion through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's always that, that four-part flow, uh, whether, whether it's addressed to the Father or to the Son, uh, rarely or, or never, I think, uh, is it addressed to the Spirit specifically during the Holy Mass uh, in that regard as the collect. But, um, but nonetheless, it would be the, the, that four-part uh, kind of the address uh, a statement of praise, uh, a petition that we include there. 
and then the conclusion. And all of that, that whole structure, as well as many of the prayers we have presently in the Missal, are at least found by the 4th century and certainly much earlier. So, that leads us to the collect. And then after the collect, of course, everyone sings amen or amen and sits down and gets ready to open the ears of, uh, of the heart for what the Lord desires to speak. So that's where we'll pick up next time with the epistle uh, continuing through the creed inclusive. <laughs>